I'd like to explore this afternoon how we bring our meta practice uh, into our daily lives, into the different uh, parts of our daily lives, and how we do that as uh, skillfully as possible. One important guidance um, comes from the sacred text by, uh, called uh, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and this is, shows uh, Pooh and Piglet walking down the uh, spiritual path. <laughs> They're walking together. And uh, Pooh asks, what day is it? Piglet answers, it's today. Squeaks Piglet. Pooh, my favorite day. <laughs> so there are many ways that we know that uh, the retreat is coming to a close. And we're entering soon, uh, after uh, 1 p.m. tomorrow, into what we often call the uh, second half of the retreat. It's a way to frame it. We've done the first half, now the second half coming up after one. And um, in some ways, bringing the metta practice into uh, the second half of the retreat or also known as our daily lives, is actually a more difficult practice, more advanced in a certain way, that we don't have as much support, things are moving more quickly, they're more complex, we don't have as much uh, practice time. And in many ways, we've been to a training. I like to think of retreats as training times, but we have to, uh, somehow make real the practice in our daily lives. That's where we live. We live in typically, as it were, uh, off the cushion. Few of us spend a great deal of time on the cushion. We have, may have retreats, but which are very important. But how do we bring our meta practice into our daily lives? One of the ways to express the aspiration behind that question uh, can be seen in a, in a, for me, a very inspiring quote from a Tibetan uh, practitioner, very well known, named Shabkar, who lived in the, at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. He said, let your life and practice be one. So, not easy, uh, many, many challenges. It's really pointing to how, in the case of meta practice, our quality of kindness and warmth increasingly becomes more of our default way of being. Like in that story I told um, a few days ago about uh, Kala Rinpoche knocking on the uh, Boston Aquarium window and wanting to wish well to the, to the fish. 
And we may know people who seem to really have as their default way of being warmth and kindness, and we may feel that ourselves. So how do we how do we do that? Um, I think one of the findings of metta practice is really that uh, this quality of warmth and kindness is in a sense part of our natural being. And you know, as it as it says in the text, that the quality of metta, and again, we've said it in different ways a few times, it's not something that's fabricated. It's more something that's uncovered. And a lot of our work is to practice with what covers uh, metta. One of the ways that we can sometimes see the sort of deep quality of metta is in a number of different kinds of crises. Often in crises, the kind heart is right there. Typically, when we're not uh, scared, when there's not a lot of fear. There's, I think, a very important book that was written by Rebecca Solnit. Some of you know her work. She lives in San Francisco and is quite an important author on a a number of topics. And she wrote a book um, that's quite a powerful one called A Paradise Built in Hell. And this, uh, she studied a number of mostly natural crises, earthquakes, fires, different kinds of natural disasters, as well as a few human-created disasters like September 11th or the aftermath of September 11th. And she was interested in exploring that because there's a kind of myth often from the authorities that after natural disasters and crises, Uh, the worst of human nature comes out. People loot, they steal, they, uh, once the, you know, the fabric of ordinary civilization is frayed a bit, the worst comes out. But she found in what she looked at, whether it was an earthquake in the Philippines or uh, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake or what happened in Mexico City, I think 1985, or uh, also, again, some human-created disasters like 9-11 and I think what was um, partly human, partly natural, like uh, Katrina, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And what she found was that in virtually every case, kindness, warmth, and helpfulness came out and was dominant. And I, th- I thought I'd read a what, very powerful quotation. For me, this is showing uh, the reality of metta, kindness, warmth as, as there when, again, when certain things are uncovered. This is from Dorothy Day, you know, the, the well-known uh, founder of Catholic Worker, uh, sort of a spiritual activist who uh, grew up in Oakland. And she, I think she was born in 1898. And so 1906, eight years old. And this is what she later wrote about the San Francisco earthquake. What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindliness of everyone involved after the earthquake. 
For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Idora Park in Oakland and at the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all of our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. Quite a sentence, isn't it? While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. And again, we can see that. We look to these other events. You can see, you know, people, what, um, on the plains uh, in 9-11 who had just a few moments to communicate to their loved ones. They didn't uh, say, remember to pay the bills. <laughs> right? It was all expressions of, of warmth and quality of kindness there. And maybe, I, I imagine most of us have had some experiences like that. I, ha I have, where just in some kind of crisis, minor or, or more powerful, people just uh, drop everything to help. And I, I've seen that. To me, that really points to um, who we are most, basically. And, that's and in metta, again, we train to let that be more and more what's there more and more. So. And we can really see this, again, uh, given the state of our world, this is, um, this is really important for there to be more metta and kindness and for us to train. I think our, our training is very important for us. I think it's also important for the world. Very, very important, you know? And how do we, how do we develop a culture and our own personal practice that really supports our development in metta so that we can bring more metta and the associated heart qualities into the world. How do we bring it into the different parts of daily life, into our daily practice, into our work, into our relationships, into our participation in the wider world? So I want to actually take those areas of our lives, I want to take three areas of our lives and talk about ways to bring meta practice further into our lives. First, looking at individual practice. Secondly, looking at bringing meta into our relationships, our work and so forth. And thirdly, into our more social and collective lives, our, our lives in the larger world. And those are all interconnected, right? You know, that, um, you know, we internalize all sorts of things from the larger world and sometimes we have to deal with that in our meta practice. We may not love ourselves so much because we've internalized a certain value from the society about who we are as a member of this group with this sexual orientation, this physical appearance and so forth. And that may be, those may be very much internalized and connected with why, let's say, metta to self is hard. You know, all the different things we internalize. Again, religion, race, uh, ethnicity, age, and so forth. So they're all, they're all interrelated.
So I'll explore this, and then I think later, maybe later today, maybe tomorrow, we'll look specifically at how we make the transition from retreat to daily life, more in terms of concrete suggestions for like tomorrow <laughs> and so forth, and how to how many emails to look at tomorrow and so forth. <laughs> okay. So I like to think of ways to work with our meta practice at an individual level, at the level of individual practice. Um, in terms of how we do the practice ourselves, I, I th think of those as more inner supports and then there then are outer supports also like community, mentors and so forth. So I'm gonna divide thinking about the, uh, our own individual meta practice into kind of what we do on our own and what we do with others. Okay. So first of all, um, I think we've all found, even though we've all had, you know, at times ups and downs, that retreats are really important. And there are times, again, I think of them as times of intensive training and they're really crucial. Uh, and it's, and I think the, you know, the movement from our daily lives into training and then back is very, very creative. You know, I, I remember the, the uh, historian Arnold Toynbee said that the mark of cultural creativity is having uh, people who are leaders and visionaries in a particular community go through cycles of, of withdrawal and return. At the level of culture, that's very creative. And at the level, maybe think of Nelson Mandela or a number of other people. And it's also very crucial at the level of an individual. You know, um, vacations accomplish part of that. <laughs> but a training, a training, a retreat has aspects of a vacation, doesn't it? Don't have to cook for yourself so much. <laughs> You know, you, you're away from the usual habits, uh, away from, in, in our time, away from the electronic devices and so forth. And uh, can be really, really crucial to, to do that. Um, I like to suggest as a training or as a part of your practice to know when your next retreat is. It's actually, it sounds a little bit cute, right? But it's actually, when you think about it, it's actually pretty significant. When you know when your next retreat is, it means that you've made that a priority and you have a certain way of valuing that. And also I find when I do that, something in me uh, rests a little bit more. You know, even whatever's happening in daily life, I know that at a certain point I can have a kind of a reset, you know, a, a, a looking in a different way and maybe getting a kind of a, a cleansing. <laughs> you know, which, which can happen on retreats. One way of doing a, um, uh, a mini retreat is having the practice of a, a Sabbath, which is, has been a personal practice for me for about 35 years. Whereas I take one day a week and I have most of the day as a practice day. And of course that's an ancient tradition uh, in the West, in the East, to do something like that, to um, have a day. For me, my, uh, my Sabbath day is on Wednesdays. 
It's not, not a traditional model. But it's something like uh, Nikki told me that Gil, every Wednesday there's half a day retreat at, at IMC. That's like a Sabbath. Because uh, if you can't do a whole day, do three hours. Do uh, morning and afternoon. But even doing three or four hours in the morning will have the function of being the pivot of the week. I find my Sabbath is the pivot of the week as, it, you know, as it's intended to be. And I know that it's coming. You have to have it scheduled. You can't negotiate. Sabbaths aren't negotiated, <laughs> right? And so, uh, but to have something like that, three, even three or four hours done, you know, I know one person I know who does it every Friday afternoon, maybe two to five, does practice. And it doesn't have to be real, what, um, rigorous. It can be you sit, you take a walk, maybe you listen to a Dharma talk or do a little reading, do another short sitting, something like that. If you do that every week, that part of the week will suddenly become very important. And it's, again, it's a very significant support uh, for uh, our daily life practice. And of course, to continue metta practice uh, and help to support it going into the different parts of our life, of course, formal metta practice is important. And some of us may choose, as, as I've done a few times, to have our primary practice for a period of time be metta. You may be inspired. You may want to do the next three months or six months or two weeks or one month. Uh, have most of your formal practice be metta. You know, see, what, see what you're called to do. Many of us might want to at least bring metta in as a regular practice. I mentioned that to keep metta strong, something like a minimum per day of 10 or 15 minutes is important and really is enough, I think, to keep it, keep it going. So you might, if you have half an hour, maybe 15 minutes mindfulness, 15 minutes metta or 20 and 10, something like that. Uh, or maybe there's another time when you do metta. Maybe you, you want to keep the half hour with mindfulness. Uh, one, of, one of the secrets that I have found of daily life practice is to find little five or 10 minute periods which don't add any extra time to your day in which you can do metta. So that could mean for example, I do some knee exercises that take me about 10 minutes every day. And it's kind of ritualized. It's a habit. That means if I don't do it, it feels weird, <laughs> right? And during that 10 minutes, I practice. Another way that I might bring metta in, if I'm having a meal by myself, I typically do 10 or 15 minutes of metta practice, right? So see, it's not adding another thing to do. That's really crucial. One person I know takes five minutes to go from where she parks to where she works. Meta practice. Other people do uh, meta practice when they're driving. You know, check out your safety. You know, precautions, get it together. You know, maybe not to do meta in the most, in the worst type of traffic. But a lot of people find they can, they, uh, it works well to do metta in driving. And so they, they as it were, get that, get that time in. 
Another important support, of course, is to continue to uh, learn about metta, maybe read some, listen to talks. There are a lot of talks on both audio dharma and uh, dharma seed uh, that are metta talks. We have uh, the retreat that I'm part of at Spirit Rock is in January, and we have uh, six meta talks, six or seven meta talks for every retreat, and they go back, you know, they go back 15 years, 15 or 18 years. So those are all available. There's another, there are other retreats at Spirit Rock, at IMS, at uh, here at IRC, at other centers where there are uh, kind of a range of different teachers you can get different perspectives on metta. Just regularly getting inspired. There's actually not that much reading possible on metta, not many books, interesting. A lot more books on mindfulness, you know, for whatever reason, but, um, uh, but have ways of continuing to be inspired and have a sense of the framework, the principles and so forth. That's, that's important. You know, a big part of daily life practice is to really, sometimes we come out of retreats, and some of you may find this when you do, if you do some of that reflection and writing tomorrow morning that I, that I suggested as a way of working with unresolved issues, or just in general, what are my intentions following the retreat? Very helpful to, I, I do that at most retreats. I try to, I can just take five or 10 minutes, either reflection, a little bit of journaling, whatever just to see where I go. And for a lot of people, a retreat can make us uh, wonder about our priorities. What are my priorities? How much am I valuing my own development of my kind heart? You know, at the end of one's life, that might be the important, most important thing that each of us develops. How much attention am I giving to that? And where am I giving my time and energy? There's a line that I like a lot of from um, a poet from Persia. Hafiz is from Persia, isn't he? Hafez. Is it better pronounced Hafez? Okay. Um, Hafez says, run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. <laughs> run, run from it. Clarify priorities. Having other heart practices that uh, open the heart and finding that, oh, metta is important, but I really connected with compassion, self-compassion, forgiveness, right? That that can be really, um, really crucial to have the heart practice come out in different forms. And so if, if one of those practices resonated with you, find ways to bring it in, find ways to bring in forgiveness, compassion, Again, self-compassion is so crucial. You find yourselves being hard on yourselves. Self-compassion. Yeah. Continue with forgiveness. You find yourself, again, in many situations, there's some kind of a, you know, maybe interpersonal difficulty. See if you can work with forgiveness. Again, remembering forgiveness doesn't mean not to act. So we can have an interpersonal difficulty and both do inner work that in a way uh, uh, works through some of our stuff and then also talk to someone, you know, so, so both. 
and remembering that this this hanging out in the heart in the you know there's a phrase from the buddha called the gladdening of the heart there's a beautiful to have that be there in one's life in different ways that's really crucial for our practice to have just more more time with the, with the kind heart whatever it is you know whatever ways it occurs um and um increasingly as we do this we really shift our center of gravity so that um the kind heart is more part of our being it's a more central more and more a central part of our being you know and being um i think being with beauty is very wonderful also for gladdening the heart so being with beauty the beauty of the forest the beauty could be of art her music um this is a, another mary oliver poem about this hello sun in my face hello you who made the morning and spread it over the fields and into the faces of the tulips and the nodding morning glories and into the windows of even the miserable and crotchety best preacher that ever was this is the sun best preacher that ever was dear star that just happens to be where you are in the universe to keep us from ever darkness to ease us with warm touching to hold us in the great hands of light good morning good morning good morning watch now how i start the day in happiness in kindness with the sun and that may be outer beauty uh, i remember you know interesting i i just thought of this that after the longest meta retreat that i uh, have done which is 5 weeks i was in the middle of uh, finishing a book and i had a deadline but i really felt drawn after the meta retreat to um beautify my living space you know take care of clutter you know simplify have more beauty in different places and so i i uh, talked to the editor and i got a 5 week uh, delay and when my deadline was so i engaged after the meta retreat in what could be called interior decoration <laughs> <laughs> meta is a kind of an interior decoration isn't it so there's inner and outer interior decorations <laughs> so to speak so um yeah and just to to see which of the heart practices work you know practices like gratitude are particularly good gratitude and and mudita her joy are particularly good for anyone who has an overly critical mind i won't ask for a show of hands but but you know how many of us are inclined to identify a problem more than what's working <laughs> okay no, uh, well i wasn't asking for a show of hands the hands are <laughs> hands are going up <laughs> okay and basically if you do gratitude practice you're training in the opposite direction you're inclining oh let me see what's positive same thing with joy Let me see what's positive in the situation. So that that can be very wonderful. And meta practice again in our daily lives is really strengthening 
Another way to say it in daily life, it would be to strengthen the intention to come from the kind heart. And we can remember this in the different situations of daily life. Can I come from the kind heart? And so even to remember that before a difficult meeting or in a particular situation or with family or with whatever, can I come from the kind heart? Remember that line from Julia Butterfly Hill, is my action coming out of love? Can I keep asking that? I think that we could interpret meta practice as nothing other than asking, where is my heart right now? What, where am I coming from in terms of my kind heart? And we can really work with uh, intentions in that way. And we can, bring, we can bring that intention to be with the kind heart even into difficulties. Even into difficulties that we can, uh, again, a little bit harder, but can I bring my kind heart even when, where there are challenges or problems? or obstacles. To, to repeat something I said at the last talk, in daily life, metta, when it's developed, is incredible resource when we get stuck. When we get stuck, we get self-critical, we get into judging another person. When our mind gets really stuck, metta can be used, as I mentioned before, as an antidote. Because it's a samadhi practice, if it's developed well, it has the power to shift our state. That is skillful when we're stuck again. Again, I gave the example of the middle of the night. Something didn't go well yesterday. We wake up and get really hard on ourselves. And that's, that's a very hard situation to get out of. And so with our mindfulness, we want to know I'm stuck. And then we could bring in metta. You know, there are other, other ways to work with getting stuck, but metta can be a very strong antidote. Sit up in bed, do metta, and continue with it until the stuck place is gone. Again, you need to have some strength to do that. If you don't practice metta on a daily basis, it won't be available at those, at those important times. <clears throat> Number of outer supports as well. Of course, community is really, really crucial. You know, to have people we uh, know in meta practice, that could mean uh, maybe connecting with people at this retreat. I think there is a, an email list that gets sent out from this retreat, isn't there, Nikki? I've, I've heard that there's some way that people can stay connected. Maybe not. Okay, we can talk about it, but that that's, that's a wonderful way to stay connected. So it might be that you, could be that you talk with someone at this retreat, uh, you know, at the end when we're doing talking and say, would you be willing to send an email to me once a week and check in about my meta practice? Having a meta buddy, something like that, or uh, someone to continue with can be really, really helpful to, um, to keep the meta going. That's an aspect of community. You know, I, I know um, you, have, you have a Wednesday meta practice at IMC, so you could come to IMC on, on Wednesdays. Um, I know from some of the meta retreats that I've done, uh, that I've uh, been part of, sometimes uh, groups have come out of that where people say, I want to meet once a month on a Sunday morning, do a morning of meta, and then have a potluck. And 
people have sometimes been creative, designed groups like that, you know, had sign-up sheets for people interested, and people, uh, one of those has hap worked for three or four years like that, and is a tremendous support for Meta. So uh, community, really crucial. Um, to work with mentors and teachers can be very helpful too, people who you can check in with. You know, we still, I think, in our extended community, there's still kind of a shortage of people who can be mentors and teachers. And I know there's some training programs at IMC and elsewhere that can help people who can um, take the role of what we call sp spiritual friends, which more or less means someone who's a step or two or three uh, beyond where you are who can give some guidance. <coughs> There are a lot of challenges to meta practice in daily life. There is busyness, you know, not taking care of oneself. Um, another practice that makes it hard to stay in the heart is that for a lot of us, our work may be really in a mental realm. You know, if we're on computers a lot or whatever, that's harder. You know, it's harder to do that. Some of us are maybe in the helping professions where metta can really be aligned with, with one's work you know, where, where it can be a little bit easier. One, one um, important aspect, I think, of practice that we haven't mentioned as much is the role of the body. And I think having awareness of the body in daily life, which is not always easy, sometimes we have to go through periods of training, can play a very significant role. You know, I know myself that I, I think I, you know, um, even though my conditioning, w you know, as a boy and man was, I think, not to express emotion so much and be a little more cognitive, but I knew, as I, I mentioned the other time, that I had a tender heart, right? And as I developed more in the heart, there was a lot of openness. I found that I sometimes got knocked around, you know, open heart, but not always so grounded not always so stable. And, and so I think one of the ways that uh, we can really stabilize the meta practice is find ways of grounding ourselves in daily life. Being more grounded in the body is one way to do that. I found, for example, I did a period of practice once where I really developed what sometimes in Japanese is called the hara, sort of in, in martial arts is a, a center that you operate from. And I put a lot of attention in developing that and it sort of balanced out an open heart to really have a way of grounding or connecting. And I found that doing that was really crucial for not being knocked around so much. In other words, the open heart is great. We have to also have ways that we have other centers developed as well. And, and the body in particular, I think, having um, like the energetic center of the, you know, around the belly can be really, really helpful. Uh, so I'm saying that without necessarily, we, we, didn't make, we didn't make that a part of the, of the retreat, but we can do that in different ways. You know, you can do that as a meditative practice, just keep more attention here. There are other practices one can do. Some of the martial arts, can develop that. You do something like Qigong, 
you can really develop that as a center. So I'll just mention that and maybe we can, you know, if there are questions later, we can explore that more. <coughs> so secondly, looking at meta developing meta practice in our relationships, and I've already mentioned some ways of bringing that into, into work. Um, <coughs> we can bring meta practice into a lot of activities at work and with others. You can sit at a meeting, especially if you're not needing to be real active and do meta practice the whole time. Um, a little bit dividing our attention, a little bit multitasking. That's okay. It can work. Actually, there are a lot of meditative ways of multitasking, which not the theme of our retreat, but it's possible. But it's really possible to pay some attention and also have the energy in the heart. Actually, that's a key way as we develop it more to bring metta into speech, interaction. It's possible to really stay in the heart. The training for that can feel a little awkward at times, but as we do it more, it becomes more natural just to have the heart present, even as we're, as we're listening, interacting, and so forth. This is not easy, I should say, but it's possible. And so you can try, particularly where you don't have to be real active. You're at a meeting and you um, listen, but you also do your phrases. Again, you can try that with driving. You know, do metta when driving. You, pr you experimented with enough being here doing metta in walking or doing metta in eating, right? That's a kind of multitasking, right? You have to have some of your attention in walking um, so that you uh, don't damage the redwood trees, <laughs> right? <laughs> or have them damage you, right? And, um, and so we can do that. We can do that at meetings. Uh, we can somehow bring metta into our different parts of our lives. Um, at that five-week meta retreat, the last three days, I needed to look at my emails and attend to some things outside of the retreat. And so three days before the end of the retreat, four and a half weeks of sustained meta practice, I downloaded 400 emails. Okay. So this is an example of, uh, at least in that instance, the guidance we'll give is do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> okay, but I had to do that for, for different reasons. And, um, but I had been doing the phrases continually and there was no way I could do email without saying phrases. It was really interesting. And I worked out a practice that I mostly have stayed with for over 10 years, which is that I would do metta practice with every message. And I would do go through um, typically four phrases with every email. And then I try to have in the body of the email a phrase that's brought the spirit of metta in. May you be well, something like that. I hope things are, are well. And I vary it with people I write to a lot so it doesn't get overly obnoxious. <laughs> and some of you in this hall have experienced, uh, experienced this from me. Um, but it, it's, um, it became a way that I connected meta practice with being on the computer. Right? We do not have clear instructions from the Buddha about this. <laughs> 
you know. So how do you do that? And, and it also slows us down. You know, one of the things about daily life is we just get in a, what? In a rush, basically. Got to do this, got to do this, now this, now this. And of course that can be efficient, but it can take us out of our hearts and out of our mindfulness. And so if you're willing to experiment with not doing emails quite as speedily, you can try this practice. Maybe try it the next few days, see how it goes. It's a simple practice, it doesn't take that much time, but you do a little bit of metta and you do an email. <coughs> We're, I don't know if we'll, tomorrow we have plans to retake the ethical precepts, do we do that? Okay. We can, yeah. The ethical precepts, very simple precepts about not harming most generally in different variations, are really crucial for metta. Non-harming can be seen as an expression of kindness. And so really taking the precepts uh, with care in our daily lives supports metta practice a lot. Bringing that sense of kindness. Kindness is connected with not harming. There's a very uh, powerful passage which brings, which points to this connection. Very was very powerful for me when I first heard it. Uh, it was, I think, it was in a talk by my colleague uh, Guy Armstrong. It's a, it's a passage uh, from uh, the Buddha, one of the uh, collections, which is called the Collection of Inspired Utterances, or Udana, U-D-A-N-A, -A. and you you can find uh, those collections. Uh, in different sources. One of them is the, uh, you know, the Access to Insight website has a lot of translations by uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu. Some of you know that. And the Udana are these inspired utterances. And th these are four lines from uh, one of those uh, texts. I visited all quarters with my mind. I did not find any dearer than myself. Self is likewise dear to every other being. And then this last line, one who loves oneself will not harm another. One who loves oneself will not harm another. When I first heard that, it was uh, intense and it was almost like it's something very um, powerful woke me up. And I've reflected on it since hearing about it. It's a very, it's a very amazing uh, statement. It's basically that if we love ourselves, we become safe. It also points to the, to the roots of harming in something that's off with one's own relationship to oneself. That we somehow don't love ourselves and there's some way that we don't know ourselves. And that permits us to, to hurt others. And again, we, might, we could bring in some of the reflections that Nikki gave us about the common humanity. There's some way when we really love ourselves, we know that more deeply. And we don't know, when we don't love ourselves, we don't really know that. It actually points towards metta practice and metta to self as a really crucial ingredient for social healing. When you think of it, how much violence comes out of people who don't love themselves. 
or where that's obscured. You know, I think of the, the, the studies of the common roots of many terrorists, you know, at least in um, like third world terrorists, was that there was a history of humiliation in their countries where there was a deep sense of humiliation and that made possible. It was one of the, of course, very few people went that route, but it's a factor. You know, that self-love was um, violated by colonialism or by um, oppression, right? And that's one of the roots that leads to violence. I think it's in that line, one who loves oneself will not harm another. And there was a line from the Metta Sutta, wishing in gladness and in safety. Right? They're, they're, they're connected. Metta, the ethical prin- principles, the ethical precepts, and safety. <coughs> Speech practice is a real fundamental one for metta. How can you bring metta into your speech, into your communication? I've been, I've been, as many of you know, very interested in speech practice and, and I've been actually working with retreats on speech for about 12 years. And it's, um, um, some of you have been there. <laughs> and there, it's been really exciting to see, try to, to be cre- more creative. How do we bring, for example, the spirit of metta into our speech practice? And uh, a lot of ways to do this, uh, the very guideline, the Buddha gives essentially four guidelines for skillful speech. To be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of metta, and to have good timing. The key is you have to have all four together. You can come out of a, a heart of metta, be very truthful, be very helpful, and have really bad timing, and it's a mess. <laughs> Okay, so have to remember all those, you know. So I imagine the Buddha was walking around with the community saying, how's your timing? How's your timing? How's your timing? You know, so, uh, but we can try to bring that sense of warmth and kindness to our speech. We can work with those guidelines, but I think just to ask, um, is there metta in my speech? You know, a way to simplify the, the, um, suggestions about speech that I I sometimes offer at the end of a retreat, rather than give a lot of uh, instructions, is basically stay in your body and stay in your heart. Those are kind of instructions. And if I need to give myself instructions for a challenging time to speak, I give myself those two instructions. Those are like what are called in some traditions pith instructions, P-I-T-H, meaning you've heard a lot, but if you have to remember something short, here it is, (laughs) right? Very helpful. Stay in your body and stay in your heart. And that can help with the spirit of metta coming in. Another dimension of our speaking and being with others is to intentionally develop uh, more empathy, more understanding of others understanding their emotions, understanding what matters for them, and to cultivate that as a practice. When we are not tuned in, it's really an expression of metta, 
kindness. I want to understand you. When we're not like that, we may tend to be um, not treat people well. You know, my um, my brother-in-law uh, uh, worked for many years with the homeless in in Berkeley, and he uh, told me a story of encountering at the homeless shelter a person who formerly um, um, had been. No, I think I think this was. I'm not sure he was homeless at the time, but he, he was a former burglar. And he told the story of what happened when he himself was burglarized. It totally changed his life because that brought him empathy. He didn't have empathy before, <laughs> but someone burglarized him. And he said, he said, I was burglarized. I reflected. Oh, yeah, I used to do that <laughs> until I got burglarized. I felt violated. After that, I couldn't do that to others. <laughs> kind of a funny story, right? <laughs> but there's something there that cut through the lack of empathy, right? Something was there that that did it for him. <clears throat> Advanced daily life, interpersonal meta practice, be with difficulties, be with difficult interactions. You know, we've talked about that some. Bring your meta practice into difficulties in small ways. Start with the less difficult and go to the more difficult uh, circumstances. You know, can I bring my meta practice even when things are a little challenging? We have guidelines on what to do. You know, can I do that? Can I try to do that? Can I, can I remember? And again, sometimes that meta can again coexist with um, setting boundaries, sometimes speaking forcefully, saying no, those can coexist with metta. Some of you know the well-known story from India of a, a cobra who was uh, um, uh, not liked by the community <laughs> of people. And the cobra went to a saint and the, um, um, uh, the, the cobra said, when they see me, when the people see me, they want to kill me. What should I do? And the saint said, don't bite people anymore. And so the cobra went about his business, didn't bite people. A little later, he comes back to the saint. Remember, this is, this is a story about being with difficulties. And um, he came back to the saint. He was all beat up, poor cobra. And he said, I followed your guidance. And look at me, I'm in bad shape. And the saint said, I told you not to bite, but I didn't say not to hiss. Okay. Okay, so there, there are forms of metta with really difficult situations where we have to hiss as much with the spirit of metta as possible. <laughs> okay. okay. Last, last part of the talk, I want to talk briefly about how we bring metta into our larger world. It clearly needs it. There, even, you know, even in the last period of time, there seems to be an increase in lack of empathy, hatred, lack of caring. And so it's actually really crucial to develop metta, bring it into your world, you know. It's being taught in the schools. You know, one of the beautiful things 
about some of the, uh, there are a lot of programs for bringing mindfulness and metta into the schools and it's happening. Little kids are getting taught metta, you know, and, but we need to somehow both keep our metta practice going. Maybe even if you feel the, the almost emergency situation in the world, maybe you'll feel, oh, I better, I think I want to up my metta practice and see if I can bring it into my work and then, and then into the larger community. You know, can I bring care, love, kindness, metta in? You know, people like uh, Dr. King in their nonviolent movements thought that they were bringing, they, their own self-understanding was bringing love into the world. You know, that, uh, that, they, were, that the, they were seeing that uh, nonviolence, non-harming, was an expression of love. Cornell West, uh, I've took that in a little different direction. The um, activist and uh, uh, writer, and he said that uh, justice is the public face of love. That care about justice is related to love. And of course you see that with Gandhi or King or people like that. A lot of us will do that through service. You know, and again, one of the inspiring aspects of the retreat center here is that quality of service and community. And you know, this morning I loved as I was cooking uh, breakfast. I hope the oatmeal was okay. (laughs) I ate it and I'm fine. (laughs) But I love the, uh, the sign in the kitchen that basically says, I forget the order, but love people and feed them, right? It's in the kitchen. You've probably, most of us have seen that. And this morning, at the moment of preparing the meal, I felt that. I felt that that service, that cooking was a form of love and really connected to our practice, right? And can we bring that sense of service in our wider community or, you know, for you it might be in your family or, you know, whatever. It could be in mentoring or tutoring or whatever. You know, can we, can we bring that spirit of metta into, into community, into our service? For some of us, we may be inspired by the figure of the Bodhisattva in Buddhist tradition, an archetypal figure who brings the depths of inner work and care for others, helping others. Some of us may be very inspired by that to combine inner work with helping others. It's a beautiful vision. Again, many of us do that in our work, you know, whether here or as therapists or nurses or doctors, teachers, parents, whatever. (coughs) Thich Nhat Hanh talks about developing love in action in the wider world. Can we do that? There was a line, uh, the line from uh, um, 
President Obama visited Burma in 2012, and he went to the uh, uh, went to some of the great uh, sacred sites in uh, Rangoon, and he gave a talk. And this is what he said: "I have seen just earlier today the golden stupa of Shwedagon, and have been moved by the timeless idea of metta." We had a president who talked about metta. I have been moved by the timeless idea of metta, the belief that our time on earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. Fear is not the natural state of civilized people. I believe that, he said. And so I like to think that there's almost like a, a new model of a new kind of bodhisattva coming into the world, a new kind of spiritually grounded, uh, service provider and activist who trains very much in metta, who trains in the different heart practices, who trains in mindfulness, who trains in equanimity, right? And um, personally, I've been involved with a number of training programs where we try to manifest that. It's been very inspiring, you know, from six months to two years in duration. And can be, for me, that's an inspiration. And, you know, we need that now more than ever. We need to train so and be in community uh, with others. <clears throat> so I'm going to just close with, um, I think I'll just close with one story which indicates some of the simple power of metta. This is a story more set in the larger world. This is a story from uh, uh, that I actually heard from my mother about uh, former Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, African-American Congresswoman who ran for president in 1972. Some of you know that. There was a film made of her life. And I actually met her because... Um, um, I once worked in the U.S. Congress, believe it or not. <laughs> Good training for a Dharma teacher. <laughs> I won't go into that now. <laughs> uh, but I met her. She's, very, she's like five feet tall. And very, she was. She, she died about uh, a little over ten years ago. <clears throat> and this is the story. Um, she was in the presidential race in uh, 1972 as the first African and I think the first woman candidate for president. One of the other candidates in that uh, presidential race at the time was uh, George Wallace, who was the, uh, what, the governor of Alabama and like an arch, we would say an arch segregationist. You know, quite, quite racist in many ways. <clears throat> and the, you know, the, the story is a meta story. So during the campaign, some of you may, may know, George Wallace was shot by a would-be assassin. Shirley Chisholm uh, went to the hospital 
and visited him, his first words um, on seeing her were, your people wouldn't want to know that you're here. I think her response is just very simple metta. She said, um, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. And she spent time with him. She spent time with him in the hospital. He survived the assassination attempt. He recovered. I don't know the exact causality, but something um, shifted with this man. And Shirley Chisholm was later um, the co-sponsor of a bill at that time to raise the minimum wage. This was a little bit after that. And um, George Wallace cooperated with her and enlisted a number of the uh, Congress people from the southern states. And the bill passed. And they, uh, they worked cooperatively. Later, some of you may know that uh, Wallace um, repudiated his past views. He repudiated um, his racism publicly and became someone who spoke about reconciliation. I don't know the causality, but I like to think that that uh, simple moment of what we might call metta um, changed, changed the world in a significant way. Yeah, we don't know always the effects of our action. It's good to remember that story. It's that very simple kindness. That's what we're practicing. So thank you everyone. Thank you for your kind attention. And may we continue with our practice.